Welcome to the teaching ministry at Carthus Creek Community Church. Hey, good morning, everyone. Really glad that again you're here with us this morning, and a huge hey to many of you watching or listening online, wherever you might be, probably in cottage country right now. Well, we're starting a new series today, an unexpected one called Lakes, uh, Lemonade, and Lamentations. And so if you have a Bible, I'd love you to turn to the part of the Bible you probably don't know exists, <laughs> called Lamentations. As I shared last week, Joe and I just got back from our trip overseas. Our first flight on our way home was two hours, and then we had a two-hour layover, and then another about eight or nine-hour flight. Ever been on a flight like that before? See some hands? Yeah, I think a lot of us have done that before. Well, if you know, when you get off a plane, you want to do one thing, don't you? You just want to get home. So there I was at the baggage carousel, and the tension began to rise again. Hundreds of us right there just hoping and watching and waiting for one thing, our baggage. Would it ever come? You know how it is. Have you ever noticed that there's a strategy about how people get their bags at the airport? There are people that are really obsessive, and they're right by the chute, and they all gather around. Then there's another group that's halfway down, so they have the space to grab their bag, but they still see it come out of the chute. And then there's another group that's all the way on the other side. They just want to do things the way they want, in their space and in their time. So that's what's going on like at every carousel around the world at that moment. So we arrive, and the bags from the last flight are making their hundredth trip around the loop. You know what I'm talking about? Now, we all know that they're not our bags. They're from Hong Kong, but we all check them anyways, again and again and again, just hoping maybe magically they're our bags. I think it's sort of connected to the definition of insanity. Anyway, as we continue to check bags that aren't our own, we get sort of knocked out of our jet lag darkness and obsession with these bags from Hong Kong when our bags begin to come out. Now, you know that feeling. There's celebration in the air when the bags begin to come. There is joy, real joy, when you see your bag. So there I am with my wife, my parents, people all around getting bags, freedom and joy and bliss. But our bags didn't come. Bag after bag looked like mine. And so you grab it. You know what I'm talking about. You grab it. Uh Oh, not mine. Put it back. Time and time again, blow after blow. I needed comfort. I was getting a little frustrated. So I looked around to see if other people were in pain like me. Oh, good, they are too. I don't feel so bad. See, my logic was sound, right? If they don't have their bags, then I don't have my bags, and there are, are more bags to come, I think. Suddenly, I see our first bag. Yeah, yes, it is our bag. I was excited. Two more to go, I thought, and the second one came out. This is good. I've got this. By this time, my mom and dad have all their luggage. The pain is still on other people's faces, but I don't care anymore. I've got two of my bags. One minute, two minutes, five minutes, eight minutes, ten minutes. The crowd is beginning to thin out. No new bags. My body language changes back to what it was. The pain now in my face. We just kept watching the old bags go around and around and around like a trance, like a black hole. I just could not get out of joy to frustration to sadness. All hope is lost. And I finally just admitted it out loud. Our third bag isn't coming. There I was. Can you picture it? Just staring at the bags, looking at the things changed to Frankfurt or something else. We walk over to the baggage help desk. Ever been to one of those before? What do we find there? A janitor. How exciting. 
Hope is now almost gone. We walk to another desk on the other side of the terminal. Everyone else at this moment I'm thinking is gone. There's no fruit of the Spirit at this moment. No love, joy, peace, patience. They're all in their cars already. They're being met by family. Kisses, reunion, roses, not us. I come up to the desk and give our flight number, our bag number. I don't expect any miracles at this point. I've been here before. Suddenly the man looks up and is kind. I didn't know what to do with that. So he said, well, let me check your bag. I said, okay. He says, oh, I found it. Really? I said, where is it? He said, it's in Munich. (laughs) Munich. I said, well, World Cup celebration? I didn't understand. So, uh, fine. He says, it will probably be two or three days and it will come. I left sort of happy and sort of sad because... I wondered if it ever would come. I've, been ha- I've, I've had this promise before that it would come and it just doesn't come. Well, two days later, the bag did show up at 1.30 in the morning at my mother and father-in-law's house. Joy. <laughs> Joy. As my wife and I are up north hanging out at a camp. Anyway, the above experience, which many of us as world travelers have experienced time and time again, is not a big deal. But it does reflect the pattern of the book we're about to explore this morning. See, from an unbelievable high in my life, one of the best trips I've ever had in my life, to a gradual low, to actually loss and frustration, to then suddenly a small hope that things might be restored in the future. That's exactly the pattern of the book we're going to read today. The pattern really is from health and relationship to complete loss and frustration to only possible reunion. And so today we begin the most unusual of summer series with the least read book in the Bible. When I've been telling some of my colleagues that I'm preaching through Lamentations, they all laughed and said, you're joking, right? I said, no. And they said, oh. As I reflected, I don't think I've ever heard in my whole Christian life a message out of the book of Lamentations. It's made up of five very depressing poems. That's why no one reads it. A lament simply means to cry out loud. It's a dirge. It's actually a song of loss sung at funerals. They're about loss primarily, laments that is, but they have hope only on the edges. Now, this book is about the fall of Judah and the destruction of Jerusalem in and around 586 B.C. This part of God's word is really a death wail over Jerusalem. She's pictured as a widow and a disgraced princess. Who wrote the book, many ask? Well, some think it's Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, because He actually prophesied that this was going to happen. Others say, well, we're really not sure who wrote it. I personally think there's a strong connection to Jeremiah. But here nor there, this book is needed to be read and connected to. Because as we know as Christians, it says in the Word of God that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for, including this book. Second, this is a really unique book in the Bible, but we don't catch it because most of us read it in English or our own mother tongue. It has literary parallels with funeral laments, the lament psalms, Job struggling with God and his friends, and oracles that God has given against different nations. But there's something more. Four out of the five poems are between 20 and 22 stanzas long, matching the 22 alphabet, the letters from the Hebrew alphabet. In this way, actually the poems in the original language read like an acrostic, each stanza beginning with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. We don't catch that, but there's a great rhythm, and you've got to remember when we read this together, it's actually a song, it's actually a poem, it's a rhythm we just don't catch in our language. At its heart, Lamentations was birthed to do one thing. It's to give form and procedure to the human act of mourning. 
But it wasn't formalized grief without context. As we're about to see even today, this book of the Bible is brutally honest about how, what, and why things happen. No excuses here, just truth. It's a mix of honesty about sin, but also the prophet Jeremiah and the city are going to cry out, God, we know we deserve the judgment, but I think maybe this is just a little too far. Then sprinkled out throughout the whole book are little bits of hope. Little bits of light amongst the long, overarching shadows. The lament begins this way. Jeremiah is crying out that Jerusalem is lonely and deserted. She has been abused on every level. Later, the cry will move from Jeremiah to the city itself. Hear the word of God. How deserted lies the city, verse 1. Once so full of people. How like a widow is she who was once great among the nations. She who was the queen among the provinces has now become a slave. The once noble city. Don't forget the center of worship of the one true living God. The beloved is now a widow, a slave. She is broken at every place and every level. Life that was beautiful, fun, full of rest is now ripped away. Love, worship, family is gone now in the ashes of war, rape, and plunder. She is destitute economically, ethnically, emotionally, and spiritually. She is no longer noble. She is a nobody. Now we tend to read these words in psychological terms only. But we must understand this is also about social status. Don't forget, this is about one thing. The city of God, the light on the hill, is dead. Bitterly she weeps at night, the scriptures say. Tears upon her cheeks among all her lovers. There is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. Now we're only at verse 2. Does anyone now know why people don't read this book? This verse is central, by the way, to understanding the book of Lamentations. The scriptures bluntly declare her lovers and her friends are now gone. Judah had again and again committed adultery on God for years and years and would not repent. The people of God, the ones that had his scriptures, his word, had relationship with him. Those that had his temple, his very presence, had prophets and priests. Everything the world did not have and they had. But Judah had said yes to God and yes to Baal, had said yes to other gods. They said yes to other worship. They sang not to one, but many gods. They sacrificed to some, not to one. They shared partners. Listen to this. They shared partners and thought their spouse would just be okay with it. And it's not just religious adultery. God's people even chose to trust in foreign military power and not to trust in the God that had delivered them time and time again, even militarily in their history. That's why the reference is to lovers and to friends. King Zedekiah revolted against Babylon and entered into an alliance with Pharaoh in 589. Nebuchadnezzar would have no time with this. The king of the Babylonians comes in and begins the invasion. He puts a siege around Jerusalem, which lasts 18 months. You'll see it in this book. And at last, suddenly, the walls are breached. The conquering of the city begins. Jerusalem is plundered. And then this is the most horrific of things. Solomon's amazing temple, the very verse that this church is claiming, 2 Chronicles 5, where God's presence came down and they knew that God was with them, that temple is burnt to the ground. Most of its inhabitants are taken away into captivity. And by the way, that's where the story of Daniel begins, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, back to the song with no hope. After affliction and harsh labor, 
Judah has gone into exile, verse 3. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads of Zion mourn, for no one comes to her appointed feasts. All her gateways are desolate. Her priests groan. Her maidens grieve. She is in bitter anguish. That little phrase, her feasts, is important for us today. Much of Judah's worship was centered around festivals and feasts. They were gathering points just like this today for the community to worship, to rest, to celebrate what God had done and what he was going to do. Forgiveness, Sabbath, Jubilee, redemption, freedom from slavery, all gone, all broken. Nothing is left but ash. Her foes have become her masters, verse 5. Her enemies are at ease. The Lord, here it is, the Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Her children have gone into exile captive before the foe. After years of warning, years of pleading, years of trying to save this dying marriage, the word has already been given, sending prophet after prophet, including Jeremiah. It now had come to pass. Time and time again, he told the people, the prophets, the kings, that the Lord would punish them if they continued to be unfaithful. Why do you want my wrath, he said to them. Why do you want this? We have relationship, heaven cried out. I chose you from among the nations. You didn't choose me. Yet they said by their word and their deed, no. We will love God and obey him as long as it suits us. And so at that moment, God has given his people over. He has suddenly taken his hands of protection off them and allowed their sins to find them out. Long-term unrepentance always leads to this. As we read, everyone is affected. Priest, prophet, maiden, young and old men, all have been touched by sin and its consequences. And by the way, hear this clearly today. Hear this very clearly this morning. All sin that is embraced always will bring suffering and sorrow. All the splendor, verse 6, has departed from the daughter of Zion. Her princes, like deer that find no pasture in weakness, they have fled before the pursuer. In the days of her affliction and wandering, Jerusalem remembers all the treasures that were her in days of old. When her people fell into enemy hands, there was no one to help her. Her enemies look at her and laugh at her destruction. Jerusalem has sinned greatly and has become unclean. All who honor her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She, she groans and turns away. Her filthiness clung to her skirts. She did not consider her future. Let me say that again. She chose not to consider her future. She had the ability to, she had God's intervention to, and she said no. And then the words come out like this. Her fall was astounding, and there is no one to comfort her. In times of deep trouble, all of us search and look for comfort and hope. From God, friends, family, pastors, counselors, someone, but here it says there is no hope. No comfort in any way. They're utterly alone. As one wrote, the chapter falls short of claiming that God has betrayed the city, but it seems clear that the experience of divine judgment has shattered the emotions of all the poem speakers. There is no relief for unimaginable anguish. He goes further. He goes deep with God. One who, by the way, had been faithful, cries out these words in verse 9. Look, O Lord. Look on my affliction. 
The enemy has triumphed. The enemy has laid hands on all her treasures. She saw pagan nations enter, enter your sanctuary. Those you had forbidden to enter your assembly. All her people groan as they search for bread. They barter their treasures for food to keep them alive. Look, O oh Lord, consider, I am despised. Pagan nations enter the sanctuary. We as modern people of faith, I don't think, understand the rawness of this statement. Enemy soldiers have desecrated the most holy, the most cherished place on earth, the temple, the walls of the city now breach, death everywhere, rape, slaughter, slavery, and then the most terrible things beyond any horror of war. Non-believers run past the altar where years of sacrifice took place, given to God, past the basin where ritual washing took place, once full of holy water, now full of blood. The memories keep flooding as Jeremiah recounts this in his mind's eye. Soldiers going up the stairs, now into the holy place. The incense altar is thrown down. The table of sacred bread is broken. The ten lampstands, which represented the light of God to Israel and the world, are snuffed out. But then, it's even worse. Jeremiah heart breaks, he convulses, and he cries out as he thinks and he remembers this most terrible of things. They rampage into the holy of holies. They cut down the great sheet between them and God. The only place where the kings wouldn't even go in. Only the great priest was allowed in where he'd burn incense and the sins of a nation were forgiven. And at that place, people who didn't even love the God of the universe burned it, spit, and rampaged. Hear these words again. Jeremiah says, look, O oh Lord, look at my affliction the enemy has triumphed. And don't misread those words, for they themselves represent other false demonic gods. I am despised. God, I'll be honest with you about sin, but I insist you need to look at me. I'm your son. I'm part of your people. Look at me. Hear my condition. I am reviled. I am loathed. I am destitute. I am loved, and I am insufferable. The song now changes voices from the prophet now to the city itself, crying out to the God that they only half loved. The city moans and looks for God in that land of loss and ash. Is it nothing to you, all who pass by? Look around and see, she says. Is any suffering like my suffering that was afflicted on me, that the Lord has brought me in the day of his fierce anger? From on high he sent fire. He sent it down actually into my bones. He spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He's made me desolate. I'm faint all day long. My sins have been bound into a yoke. My hands, they've been woven together. They've come upon my neck and the Lord has sapped me of all strength. He's handed me over to those I can't even withstand. My sins are a yoke. What a great reversal of the great truth we, as people of faith, hold. Was it not years later that Jesus would come along and say these words? Do you need rest for your souls? Did he not say, take on my yoke, it's light and easy, and you'll find rest? You can read it from Genesis to Malachi time and time again. God always says to his people, if you would only take my commands on and not something else, you will find rest. But here now is the great reversal. See, a yoke implies obedience and slavery. What makes the difference is what sort of master you get to serve. So the beneficial effect of God's yoke is actually derived from his character. But now sin is birthed. And God has agreed to give them over because they have called for it. And so their so-called lovers and friends put a yoke on them. 
and it brings no rest but death. The lament continues, even though many of us don't even want to continue. Jerusalem at this moment is wide awake, unable to sleep, sobbing continually with grief, harassed by terror and deprived of all comfort. They cry out to heaven, and it seems still to be death. The Lord has rejected all my warriors in my midst. He has summoned an army against me to crush my young men. In his winepress, the Lord has trampled the virgin daughter of Judah. This is why I weep and my eyes overflow with tears. No one is near to comfort me. No one even to restore my spirit. My children are destitute because the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is no one to comfort her. The Lord has decreed Jacob to Jacob that his neighbors become his foes. Jerusalem has become an un thing among them. Ready? Verse 18. Raw needed honesty. The Lord is righteous, yet I rebelled against his commands. Listen, all you people, the song says. Look upon my suffering. My young men and maidens are now gone into exile. I call to my allies, but they betray me. My priests and elders perish in the city while they search for food to keep themselves alive. God, again, is not some thug. Hear this this morning. God is not some thug, some mean God using people for pawns and playthings. He is a righteous judge who finally, after repeated attempts to prevent unfaithfulness in a marriage, stepped in to judge his people for their habitual, long-standing rebellion. And hear it. The city, in honesty, with no excuses, with no lying, with no deceit, not saying, oh, it's their fault, or no, no, says the Lord is righteous. And I did this to myself. It ends like this. See, O Lord, how distressed I am. I am in torment within, and my heart is disturbed. I have been most rebellious. Outside the sword bereaves, inside there is only death. People have heard my groaning, but there's no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard my distress, and they rejoice at what you have done. And then the lament changes. Then the city rises up to the God they've betrayed, but still weirdly loves and says these words. But may you bring the day that you've announced so they'll become like me. Let all their wickedness come before you. Deal with them as you've dealt with me because of all my sins. And the scene ends like this. My groans are many. My heart is faint. The lament ends by saying, God... We freely admit before you as the God of the universe who is holy, separate, and holy without sin that we've brought this on ourselves. But the first song ends by saying, but we desire and, no, no, we ask you that there would be justice for everybody, not just us. Don't forget, God, we're still your children, though we don't deserve it, and they're not. All we want is justice for everyone. Now, in the middle of the summer, when most of us will be at lakes and sipping lemonade and frolicking, we need to ask the question, what is God trying to teach us through a book most don't even want to touch? What is he trying to say to us personally and communally in the now and in the future? By the way, I need to just say this to you as one of your pastors. We don't just randomly pick topics in books. These come out of prayer times. We felt compelled and led to preach out of this. You can imagine my excitement when I got this assignment. 
So what is he saying to us? Well, let me say to you again as one of your pastors these words. The themes here for us are huge. If we do not have, hear this, a good theology of sovereignty and suffering, during the best or worst times of life, we will be tempted to blame God, to leave his people, or turn on the church. Lamentations, believe it or not, is a book that is going to and is building us up. It roots us like a tree with very deep roots so we can be honest as people and weather life brought on by us, by God, or by others. So here's how it helps us. First, it helps us as people of faith, Christians, to articulate grief. How hard it is to grasp the meaning and reason for tragedy. We all know that in here. We're no different than people who don't know Jesus. Not that way. All humans have a need to have a deep-seated process to grieve death and loss and come to grips with grief. And what this shows us clearly, clear as day, is that we as people of faith are called, we are allowed to question, we are allowed to speak to the God of the universe in our pain and suffering, even if we have brought it on ourselves. Hear Jeremiah's cry again. Look, O Lord, and consider, I am despised. You want the translation? You have to look at me, God, because you're in relationship with me. Look, God, you must look. See my condition and see the condition of those around me. Here again we learn that part of worship, part of being a fully devoted follower of Jesus, is also, at certain points, the worship of lament. We have the right to say to God, why have you allowed this? Why did you do this? Or here's the more honest one. I know I've done this, but God, is this too much? Many people walk away from church and God because they do not know how to deal with pain. And they think they are not allowed to question and to cry out. Yet lamentation says, yes, it must be done. It is part of the fabric of our faith. Brett Allman, my uh, great friend who spoke uh, last month, and that was amazing when he did that, emailed some of the themes from the responses he had from our community. I don't know any of the names or subject matters. But he said this, a theme of many of the emails that I got was the idea of permission. Permission to be angry about the things God is angry about. Permission to have feelings. Permission not to be okay. Permission to struggle. Well, I say to you again, Lamentations is a huge yes to all of that. It helps us articulate grief. It shows us that in the very inspired word of God, those that loved God the deepest, like Jeremiah, and those who knew God but didn't love him the deepest, still had the right to articulate the grief before the God they worshipped. We must abandon the idea that we do not have the right to speak back to God in grief. We will lose more and more people from our faith if we continue the lie just to say, be quiet and listen and do not speak. That is not the scriptures. There are times for that, but there are times for this. It goes deeper, though. It shows us that we, if we want a fully devoted walk, if we want a real relationship with God, if we want what we call authenticity, we see in Lamentations an open conversation with God. The prophet in the city bring the lament and all the anguish to God himself. Listen, as one wrote, God has brought the shame and humiliation on her, yes. But he also is the one they turn to in lament. It is almost as if she is reminding God that her humiliation means his loss as well. Her ridicule could become his as well. Why? Because they're tied in relationship. She cannot deny her failure and she's not trying to. Nor does she deny her neediness. Her neediness, though, is only something that God can fully grasp and God can fully heal. No one else can do it. 
Did you hear the theme again? There is no one to comfort me. There is no one to comfort me. There is no one to comfort me. The only person implied in the text that can is the one they're speaking back to. One function of her lament is to give voice to her failures so that God will recognize in her voice an indication of confession and an appeal for mercy. We are here given permission and a process to grieve we need to recover. We see an openness with God many of us are not comfortable with, but truly is at the heart of our scriptures and our faith. But I'd be remiss to overlook this last one. The strongest theme is the call to deal with sin and be involved in repentance. I just need to say this. These poems, these laments, these ancient cries are the most articulate confessions of sin and expressed grief over failure you can find in the scriptures. And yet their direction is key for us this morning, going to the only one that can solve sin and consequences. Though they were saved, and though we are saved, and we and they were in relationship with God, we need to take sin very seriously. God does. Do you? All sin, hear this, is a violent assault on the nature of God himself. We learned that in the Ten Commandments series. Lamentations teaches us, calls us, to be raw honest before God about our sin against him, ourselves, and others. There's no excuse making here. There's no blaming others or our environment or our history. No, no. It's weeping over our sin that we've decided to do. We as a church, as I've mentioned, have been praying for revival. Claiming for Second Chronicles 5 to take place, that God would come in a unique way. And praying it would be defined like Second Corinthians 5 where there would be such a love for Jesus, we'd almost want to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. But as we've shared, Dave and I and others have shared, every great move of God in history for the last 2,000 years in the Christian church, no matter denomination or background, has always begun, first and foremost, with lament. Why? Because it clears ground for new growth. I love this when I read this this week. Lamentation similarly takes up traditions of funeral poetry and prayers of anguish to clear away every vestige of self-righteousness, to close avenues of escape from responsibility for failure, and to drive home the uncomfortable truth to those who are people of faith that no one is finally exempt from God's searching judgments. The pattern again and again we're going to see over the summer is this, grief, complaint, Hope in God's character alone. Klaus Westerman, who's a great Old Testament scholar, penned these words. Hear them closely today. It is highly significant, he writes, that there is no attempt anywhere in the book of Lamentations to request restoration. We're not going to see it. All that is asked for is God's return. God continues to be remembered in the worst times, and the memory is kept alive by one thing, not by exciting worship, no, no, by complaints. They are placed before God, and here it is, Hear this closely. In hope that God's compassion will be aroused again. If you are a person joining us this morning or online listening or watching and you have not crossed the line of faith yet, you're not a Christian. You may be one in title only or belong to another faith or nothing at all. You've got to understand this. Lamentations, and we need to journey this together is the most graphic description of you spiritually. This, what we just read, and what we're going to read, is you. You are under God's wrath. You are separated because of your own sin. Scripture's clear about that. 
But the amazing thing is you look through Genesis to Revelation, the great story of our faith. God doesn't just allow judgment to stay. He also brings mercy. And that's why we as Christians realize, and actually I'm so glad that Jerome read that statement, it's by faith, not by works. We realize that God's mercy came fully in Jesus Christ. And so we, all of us who are sitting in here who were not Christians and have become Christians, every one of us got this one day by God's mercy, that we looked like this city. We were in rebellion against God, we were separated from God, and we were spiritually dead inside. And then suddenly, because God's mercy was aroused because we're made in his image, he, he sent Jesus, his son, and who died in our place and took the wrath we deserved and three days later rose again and said, if you want life and relationship again, all you need to do is confess your sin, place your trust in me as Savior, and make me Lord. That's why that great verse, Jesus' best friend, wrote, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish like this, but have everlasting life. My challenge to you this morning is this. Ask the living God of heaven and earth to show you your true condition. Because when you see how separated and sinful you are, then you'll be ready for mercy. You'll never need a savior until you know you're in trouble. But for all of us who are here today who are followers, we've bent the knee, we've said yes in our childhood or in teen years or later in life. Here's what the living God says to us as a community. Some of you desperately need a venue to grieve. And the scriptures are clear on how to do it. Bring your complaints with all your emotion and question before God. He's just fine with it. For others of us, we just need to be re-reminded that we have a relationship with God, which means open, difficult conversations with Him. And He's fine with that too. Even when we have done the sinning, He's okay with the conversation. But I do end with these words. It's something I started praying two days ago. And honestly, it's not a nice prayer. And most of you will probably check it out and leave and not remember it. But I'm asking you to try. If we desire the living God to move among us, I'm not convinced all of us want that. But if we want it, though God is full of mercy and grace, and we believe that deeply found in Scripture, Lamentations takes us in a different direction. Go before God and say, God of heaven and earth, who I know loves me, I'd like you to really show me my sin. I want to really know. No other blaming the church or others or history just show me, show me for real my pride, my lust, my selfishness, my materialism, my greed, my racism, my anger, my beliefs that aren't from you. Show me these things so I don't ever end up like this. Show me these things so I can know your mercy. I desire truth over anything else. And the good news, as we will see through Lamentations, is when we get to the place where we trust the living God enough for him to do and expose us for what we are, mercy comes. No, I'll just end with this. Anyone know the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness? Lamentations chapter 3. That's where it comes from. It gets there. But before you get to that, you've got to start here. You have been Christians for decades, I challenge you. Christians for years. You have been Christians for days. Go before God without 
fear of loss of relationship and say, Lord, show me, expose me so I can be free. Lord God of heaven and earth, we thank you that all of your word is relevant. All of your word is powerful. And we thank you, Lord, that sometimes you even bring judgment because you need to be glorified first and foremost and we need to know who's boss. And it's a hard passage, Lord, and I honestly, I can't even imagine living through the horror of that. But I pray, God, for myself, I genuinely pray this, for us who are followers of Jesus, show us the seriousness of our sin. Show us your hatred of sin. Not hatred of us, but God, show us your hatred of sin so there will be a new move among us. I pray also, Lord, for those who have struggled for days, months, or years, who have not been able to articulate grief to you. I pray you'd give them that ability. I pray, Lord, that there would be a a raw openness in this church between us and God. And, Lord, if we cross boundaries we're not allowed to, you'd you'd help us out with that. But, Lord, you you are the same God in Lamentations as you are in the New Testament. So come, Lord, and do whatever you must do for our freedom, your glory, so the world gets to see Jesus clearly. And I'm really asking you to do this, Lord, because if you don't intervene, I don't think we'll ever get around to doing this. So just have your way among us, we pray. In the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen. Thank you for joining us. For more teaching, info, or to give financially, please visit us at our website, crotherscreek.ca.